and welcome to episode 303 of the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War Podcast. My name is Seth Perrin, historian and deputy director of the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum here at Camp Shelby. And with me, as always, is my esteemed co-host, retired Navy Captain Bill Toady, former skipper of the Fast Attack Submarine USS Indianapolis, Commodore Submarine Squadron Team in Pearl Harbor, and many other assignments. How are you this morning, Bill? Doing great. Excited to jump right in. We got a new guest with us this week, as you can see, and I'm sure you can. Uh, this week, we'd like to welcome a new guest to the show. He's a fantastic historian, uh, one of the leading historians in the field, even though he probably wouldn't admit it. It is the truth. <laughs> he is the curator's distinguished professor of U.S. military history at Missouri University of Science and Technology, author of 15 books, and overall good dude. Uh, his trilogy about the U.S. Army operations in the Pacific during World War II have become go-to references on the subject, and we are very excited to have him here with us. Please join us in welcoming John McManus. John, how are you this fine I'm doing, do, doing great. Uh, thanks so much for having me, guys. I, I really appreciate it. Excited to be here. Um, well, yeah. We're excited John, to have you, man. First, the first book I read of yours was Fire and Fortitude, and what a way to be introduced into to your <laughs> Uh, material what a great book thanks i appreciate it yeah i mean it's to me um the army's role in the pacific was was sort of one of the last frontiers to explore uh at least from a u.s perspective on world war ii studies and uh yeah, i just felt that maybe that that story had to come alive and the funny thing was um you know there was so much material that we ended up having to make it a trilogy i could have written 12 books to be honest with you mm-hmm. wow. uh, there was just so much going on Totally believe that. Totally believe that. And we're going to we're going to dispel some of the myths about the United States Army's Pacific uh, Odyssey, shall we say, uh, and and some of these future episodes that we're going to do with you, John, when we talk about uh, the Army's operations, especially through the Philippines and places like that when we cover 1944 in depth. Uh, Before we get started, we want to ask you to like and subscribe to our channel as it helps other people find our show. We want to get the history to the masses. And if you want to help us do that, please hit that like and subscribe button. Um, now on with the show. So following the successful conclusion of Operation Galvanic, that of course being the capture of Tarawa Atoll and Macon Island, the U.S. Navy sets it set its sights on the next stepping stone on the road to Tokyo. The next stone in the road was the Marshall Islands, long looked at as a future fighting ground in accordance with War Plan Orange and possessing several locations that would provide invaluable fleet anchorages and picture-perfect natural harbors, the marshals rated high on the objective list for Admiral Chester Nimitz. This new operation would employ many of the lessons learned during Galvanic and would see the deployment of the even larger 5th Fleet in its complex, seemingly never-ending logistic train, as well as the incredible, powerful 5th Amphibious Corps consisting of both Marine and Army divisions that would unleash themselves on the marshals at places like Wajalan, Inuitok, Roy Namor, and various other islands in the large and spread-out atoll. By campaigns in the U.S. Navy would have its anchorages that would help feed and shelter the big blue fleet as it continued to push across the Pacific. Now, guys, um, the Marshall Islands, like I alluded to here in the opening, is, you know, it was always, I don't want to say always, but it was it had been a target for the United States military machine for years and years and years, all the way in the war plan orange. John, uh, how much did this factor into, you know, these war plan orange plans how much did all this factor into the actual operation here at this point in some ways i don't think it factors in that much at all because by the time all this really becomes a a practical reality by the 1943 and 44 the war has developed differently than war plan orange could have ever envisioned 
because you know originally War Plan Orange kind of sees us remaining in the Philippines. Um, you know, with a, with a garrison hanging on a baton and the Navy fighting a decisive battle against the Imperial Japanese Navy and reinforcing and all that good stuff. Um, so, and, and the other evidence, I guess, to support my point is that by the time, um, you know, Nimitz and his command are, are, uh, uh, planning Operation Flintlock, uh, they're really operating something on a shoestring in, in terms of figuring out, um, uh, this coral atoll, which I think was the largest in the world, Kwajalein, was. and uh, you know, and also, you know, what is the nature of the Japanese garrison? What kind of forces do we have available? So, War Plan Orange, I guess, gives a sense that you know, at least we've been looking at this place. But uh, I think that that the real planning and know-how accelerates during that um, you know December forty-three to January forty-four timeframe. It's it's incredible how quickly they put it together, actually. It really is. And that's that's a key point is how fast it was like boom. And then they were ready to rock and roll. So much so that the meeting or one of the initial meetings takes place on December 7th, 1943, by pure coincidence. Um Nimitz proposes the idea of the Marshall Islands campaign to his uh head bananas in charge there, Richmond Kelly Turner being one commanding uh commander of the Joint Expeditionary Force Task Force 51, soon to be known as the Alligator Navy. Um and Major General Holland Smith. I know you have a lot to say about Holland Smith in the future. Oh, yeah. And if if we can get to that today, we will. If not, we'll definitely get to it in the future. Um, the Marine Corps Commanding Officer of the 5th Amphibious Corps. Uh, in the meeting that follows, Nimitz outlines his idea to capture the Marshall Islands, not by capturing the outlying islands of Wochi and Malayalap, which is what initially was thought to be the, uh, the plan, uh, but by striking into the heart of the island group by snatching Kwajalein itself. His theory was that trying to capture the outlying islands would take too much time. His Nimitz's goal here, and John and Bill, you guys back me up. His goal is to accelerate this timeline. And he figured that, especially after the bloodbath that occurs on Batio, he wants no part of assaulting heavily fortified Japanese islands. Malayalap and Woche are, are they, they fit that bill, don't they? Well, they do. And I mean, this is the essential thing that Nimitz is dealing with for the whole war. And I think he's really good at it. Um, there's a lot of islands and atolls out there in the Pacific. And, you know, in the course of the war, most of them have some level of Japanese presence uh, that, that may or may not have to be dealt with. And so Nimitz is constantly having to make these decisions. Do we really need this place or not? What is the purpose of this operation? Does it have a reasonable chance to succeed? He even has like this sign on his desk, you know, with that kind of motto. And so I think he's constantly asking himself that question. And of course, in the wake of what had happened in the Gilberts, um, I think maybe he's he's sort of rethinking, um, you know, whether, you know, like maybe rethinking at a more critical level and being a little more skeptical of whether Island X, Y, or Z really has to be taken. Uh, and there's no question, but that he has to have this some level of examination. I mean, I think a uh, thousand and nine Marines had been killed in the in the Battle of Tarawa. Um, you know, the the Army's 27th Infantry Division hadn't exactly had a cakewalk at Macon either, though comparatively it was quite a bit easier. It wasn't necessarily an easy battle. Um, and so Nimitz sees this as a way to accelerate the war, and I think he's starting to get a sense too that the fleet is capable of this. Um, that that he has this level of maneuver and that he's likely to have control of the air and the sea, provided he he carries out this operation the right way. And so I think that the Operation Flintlock is really significant on that level. It's something of the product of the American uh, seaborne victories in 1942 and three that makes really this, this whole campaign even possible. 
And so maybe it'll if I go real quick on the map here, because we're going to see Terra was down here. And of course, we're going right through the Marshalls with the plan ultimately to the Marianas like that. And so, you know, zooming in, as as Seth said, to a Marshall Island map, um, it's really, um, you know, the the, um, Majuro and are those Molap is here. Uh, and Kwajalein, what looks like an island there, is actually the largest atoll in the world. And so um, th- this is really important because the most um, Japanese presence were on the outer islands here. And there was a, this great theme that we needed to eliminate the Japanese presence on those islands to uh, because otherwise we would be subject to air attack as we try to take Kwajalein. And again, the... the the atoll itself looked something like this, where Roy Namur is here, the island of Kwajalein is here, and just uh, if we can jump into 2020s for a moment, little atoll that SpaceX <laughs> first tested their rockets is here. So um, it's still being used. And I hope that uh, provides some context to this conversation, Seth, as we go forward. Yeah, it's 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 a huge place. I mean, it, it it's a it's a very. I have the figures here as I get through the notes, but I mean, it was it was a very large at. It's the largest atoll in on on planet Earth. It's a big, big, big piece of ground or water, as the case may be. Um, but you know, John, we were talking about the plan or Nimitz's idea rather to go ahead and strike Kwajalein and you know strike at the heart. Usually his plans were almost always readily accepted. This is not one of those cases. Uh, Kelly Turner and Holland Smith almost immediately, and Brace Bruins, almost immediately go, uh-uh, uh, this is probably not the best idea. We need to hit these bigger islands first. And Nimitz, who Bill has said numerous times, is you know one of those commanding officers who's, who's very uh, attuned to the situation, as the case may be. It's just one of those times where he says, no, this is what we're going to do, brother, and we're going to do it like this. I mean, it's 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 a pretty yeah. – in Nimitz's case, it's a very uh, grim conversation, I guess, is the best way. Well, it is, and I mean, because he gets blowback from these three key individuals, Turner, mm-hmm. Spruance, and, uh, and Smith. And he especially has a very strong bond with Spruance by this point in the war. Um, Nimitz tends to be – his command style tends to be more consensus building, almost in the Eisenhower mold uh, on some levels – um, so he's really not a confrontational kind of commander. And this is one of those instances where he really kind of has to dig in his heels. And it's actually very uncomfortable. Um, you know, already in the December 7th meeting, uh, you know, the, these commanders said, no, we can't do this. They're pushing back against us. He gives several days to, to kind of cool off and for them to look at it. They meet again in Turner. And Turner was the most um, voluble of the, of the Navy commanders in, in a way. And, of course, Holland Smith is Holland Smith. We all We all know what his uh, personality is like. He's certainly a, a guy who will push back. So, um, you know, they're, they're very adamant and especially Turner and eventually Nimitz has to have this sort of very uncomfortable moment saying, well, this is what we're doing. Um, so you can either be on board or I'm going to find somebody else. And so he's yeah. kind of calling his bluff and, uh, and that's really kind of a key moment. I mean, you know, obviously Bill knows this far better th- than I could, um, you know, for any military officer, to reach that moment of like, okay, what do I do now? Do I go along with something I don't agree with or do I resign or how do I handle this? And, and of course, Turner decides, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm on board with it. What strikes me about it too, this, this whole dynamic is that Holland Smith 
in later years will try and claim that he's always on board with it. You know, once yeah. once of course it's as successful as it is. And I, I think that's a window into Holland Smith's character. Um that, you know, he he tries to kind of rewrite history in the sense there was no shame in being against the the concept. It was risky. Um, it was a bit unorthodox and and uh, and their view made sense. But I don't know why Holland Smith felt he had to do that. Uh, I think it's a shame and it is a little bit of a disservice to to Nimitz because uh, Nimitz was one of these times when he did have to have this kind of buck stops here uh, sort of leadership. And I think, you know, of course, as we know, Flintlock is a big success and he's proven 100 percent right. Mm-hmm. He usually is. As he usually is. That's right. As he usually is. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> what, what Turner and Smith did not know, though, however, at this point, is that aerial reconnaissance from Admiral Baldy Palnow's carrier, fast carrier task group, which we talked about Palnow earlier, and of course he gets replaced later by Mitchell, um, they had uncovered some aerial recon that Kwajalein had a bomber strip, or I, I guess a medium bomber strip that was being mm-hmm. um constructed on the island it was in a very rudimentary form at that point it had barely been started but it had been started and um one of the things is that you know turner and smith were saying oh we need land-based air we need all this other stuff and nimitz is like well you know if what you don't know is that there's this thing being constructed here so that will actually you know follow through with our original plan anyway by providing the unlimited aerial umbrella if you will now the Japanese had also placed a large, and we talked about Wochi and Malayalap, and, and that these were the most probably the most heavily defended islands in the area. They'd placed a large contingent of people on the Japanese did placed a large contingent of people on these islands, and to that point, our intelligence intercepts had revealed that fact. Now I don't know if they knew exactly how many guys were there, but they knew that the defenses on those defenses on those two islands were going to be nasty. And that is one of the other reasons that Kwajalein and, of course, Roy Namor, both of their two islands there, but we're going to combine them into one, if you will, um, were selected as targets by Nimitz. So, you know, there were a lot of things that, that Nimitz knew that his subordinates did not know. And that goes a lot into why Nimitz makes the decision that he does there. But still, to your point, John, it's an uncomfortable decision and certainly an uncomfortable conversation. Yeah, and um, I mean, they have yeah. to have faith in, in Nimitz in that sense, too. And, they, you know, I point out, too, from a Japanese point of view, uh, if we kind of flip the, the scenario, they have to play the game the other way. Well, which islands do we garrison? Where do we defend? How do we do this? Uh, and so it's kind of a tough go for them. And I think they were starting to appreciate, by this point in the war, Kwajalein's central locality and the, the, the possibilities of air power moving in a lot of different directions from there. And I think maybe that's a little bit of the background to their their sort of construction project on the on the island. For sure. And and you know, to from from Nimitz's point of view, you know, we we talked about this a little bit when we did Basio or when we did uh, Galvanic, that you know, you always wanted to be under that continuous coverage of of land-based air. Nimitz did, or the Americans did. And by this point, Nimitz believes that the fast carriers can do that. They can and they can. They can provide that almost continuous aerial coverage i mean we got you know over a dozen aircraft carriers in the fleet at this time <clears throat> fleet and escort carriers so i mean there's a lot of airplanes we can put in the air so nimitz argues that look don't worry about your aerial umbrella spruance has got this he's got this covered and and that that kind of eases the minds of some of those guys uh, just a just a little little bitty bit mm-hmm. um 
Now, the plan to invade the Marshals was split into three different forces. The Northern Attack Force under Rear Admiral Connolly would take Roy Namor with the untested 4th Marine Division, uh, while the Southern Attack Force under the command of Kelly Turner himself would take Kwajalein with the Atu Veteran 7th Infantry Division. I know you got a lot to say about 7th ID. Uh, a reserve force would be around if it was needed and was under the command of Captain D.W. Loomis. Um, Nimitz had gathered an enormous amount of material for this operation. John, you outlined this in your book. Some of these figures for this period in time are rather staggering. Incredible. It's yeah, absolutely I mean, incredible. I mean, you know, you're talking about just, I mean, <laughs> the, the level of tonnage of supplies that have to be moved um, in the hundreds of tons, the the amount of water. Um, the the amount of the number of ships that have to be have to be put in play in order to just to carry this division, um, you know, several dozen. Uh, I mean, it's just kind of staggering uh, to think that this is what it took to just move basically two infantry divisions. It's maybe you know fifty thousand assault troops plus attachments, and then of course you're going to have the garrison forces coming behind them too. That occupies some of this as well. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's the kind of thing we're capable of now by January 1944 that a year earlier we're not, even though we're mm -hmm. carrying out amphibious operations at that point in time, most famously Guadalcanal. Um, it's done comparatively on a shoestring. So ultimately, you know, what becomes, I guess, what we'll call Fifth Fleet has something in the order of about 300 warships, but also there's all these other supporting ships. And I'd, I'd point out, too, part of what makes this possible, too, is that the beginning of the... Uh, uh, kind of floating forward logistics that the Navy has mastered very well, which I, in, in my book, I kind of compare it to uh, post-war in-air refueling, what that means for aerial operations. I mean, you can just constantly be at sea um, versus having bases and, and standing down and all that. And of course, ships have to be maintained. But um, in the end, this is all now possible. And uh, so that, that combination of um, or the fast carriers and the, the air power they bring to the table, plus the uh, land-based B-24s that are within striking distance, just really degrade a lot of the Japanese air power in uh, in the atoll, um, mm -hmm. which, of course, is crucial <laughs> because once that happens, now the Japanese don't want to risk their ships either, quite understandably, and, and it seeds the initiative, I think, to the, to the Americans very much so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for context, Seth and John, 297 ships that were involved in this operation is larger than our entire Navy today, okay? And wow. this is just one operation. We still had ships spread all over the Pacific and the Atlantic, in addition to these 297 ships that are involved in Flintlock. It's just staggering in historical perspective. It really is. I mean, and when you consider that this is small compared to, say, later on Normandy that same year, um, and of course to the Marianas, which is a bigger scale. Mm -hmm. And I mean, and obviously then the other, so I mean, it's, it's sort of the beginning, I, I guess the way I look at it is that it's sort of the beginning of, uh, what is going to be just a, an incredibly powerful fleet uh, that is yeah. obviously going to, to drive a lot of these operations around the planet and make the projection of American, uh, military power far and wide quite possible. Uh, but of course, eventually somebody's going to have to go in and control the ground because uh, that's to a great extent where the, the tipping point comes from. And I, I think there's also a kind of a new level of sophistication in the invasion planning too, 
um, you know, for for Roynimer and Kwajalein that that maybe we don't see in the in the previous at least Pacific Ops. And what I alluded to is that uh, you know, board ship for the Seventh Infantry Division. I mean, these guys have very very good photo recon. Uh, that they're drawing from. I don't necessarily know that they know the exact precise enemy order of battle, but they know the terrain that they're likely to face. They know their objectives. I mean, it's not a big place, of course. And one of the things that has allowed them to do this, not just aerial recon, but submarine recon too. The two submarines that are that are in the neighborhood and are giving you some of the panoramic. So you're, you're really seeing this nice combination of military power that for me, like at the squad leader level, is now coming to fruition because I have a pretty good sense of where I'm going, what kind of what kind of terrain I'm likely to encounter, and um, you know what my objectives are. So it's it's very different than a lot of ground combat throughout World War II in that I I know what my mission is, I know what I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, you know, it's all right there. I've got all that intel. Versus most of the time when it's like uh, go here, go there, go advance. <laughs> Why I don't know. <laughs> I hope I live, <laughs> you know, so yeah. it's a little bit different in that sense. Take grassy knoll by D-Day, you know, on Guadalcanal. Yeah, right. <laughs> Good luck. Sure. Okay, cool. Yeah, done. Yeah. You know, we, we when we talked about Galvanic, we talked about Basia, we said at the end that it wasn't unlike Guadalcanal and that it was a, a schoolhouse. You know, there, there were so many lessons learned there that it influenced literally every single amphibious operation of World War II that followed it, Europe and Pacific. And this is the first place that we really start to employ some of those lessons that were learned there, um, very hard lessons, admittedly. Um, the uh, the Amtraks, LVTs, uh, whatever landing vehicle tracks, that, that, that you know, however you want to phrase them, had proven themselves to be invaluable at Batio. You know, if we'd had more of those things probably would have been a lot different. But at this point in the war, January 1944, it's only been a couple months, but the production ability of the United States in producing these vehicles has swollen that 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 uh, storehouse of LVTs to a very, very large proportion. So much so that, it, correct me if I'm wrong here, guys, but I'm pretty sure that every single American foot soldier, be they Marine or soldier, that lands on this atoll comes ashore in an LVT, uh, or at least the assault forces. Do. In the initial waves, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's and this is two invasions that are going off at the same, same damn time. So, I mean, you can see the importance of what was learned with the experience of these LVTs at Batio is how much faith has been put into these vehicles. There's a new model. Actually, there's two new models. The LVTA2 was the new model with the heavier armor, had better troop protection and better speed, albeit not much. Uh, the LVTA1 was not a troop-carrying vehicle. This is an important vehicle you're going to see a lot in the Marianas, too. Basically the same thing, but it has a turret. It's a tank. It, it, it quite literally is a tank. Um, it, it is supposed to get ahead of the troops, lay down suppressive fire so the remaining waves can come ashore again these are all lessons that were learned two months previous you know and, and it's amazing how fast the navy and the, and the marine corps and the army picks up on these things and implements this um the lesson of not and this is huge the lesson of not providing enough fire support to the landing troops was theoretically solved with the inclusion of the lci gunboat to the fire support armada that would assist the assault waves these things are bad to the bone uh they're shallow draft vessels that would draw close in shore and pour fire into beach defenses as well as inland locations of japanese resistance 
These things were armed with 550 caliber machine guns, three 40 millimeter bofors, two 20 millimeters, and six rocket racks with 72 rockets in each rack. I mean, these things are floating gun platforms. You know, yeah. th these are serious. And you see these from here on out. You know, there's a lot of real cool footage of these things going off. And again, it's the lessons learned that we have to suppress these people ashore so our people can get ashore and knock them out. One of the things that we wanted to talk about uh, briefly is the naval gunfire support. You know, Bill and I talked about the naval or lack thereof uh, going into Basio. That problem is solved. Bill, you have a intimate knowledge with the island of Kaolave in Hawaii. Can you tell us a little bit about what goes on here? Yeah, I do. What happened is we decided that for the first time, I think, we were going to certify ships before they deployed to combat. We still do that today. But in this case, Admiral James Kaufman was commander of cruiser destroyers Pacific Fleet. He was put in charge of this certification school. And so the island of Kaolave was set up uh, as a kind of an exemplar or mock Taroa so that ships could practice not just the naval gunfire ship to shore communications, the practice what type of ammunition to fire, which type of target, uh, communications between vessel and shore. And all of that training had to occur. And then an examination of the ship before the ship was allowed to deploy. And if the ship didn't pass that certification exam, it doesn't matter what size they were, what class they were, they were not allowed to deploy. And that was a black eye. Uh, for the for the skipper and so they took these things really seriously this is one of the many things that the when the war began we did not do seth no, not to this extent anyway not not anywhere to this extent so also having learned from tarawa that bombardment both naval and aerial was essential to the success of the landing force the marshals were subject to the pounding uh, a pounding the likes of which nothing in the pacific had yet seen and it's not just naval gunfire we're talking aerial bombing, you know, from heavy bombers, medium bombers, uh, staging from Hawkins Field on Basio, Army B-24s begin bombing targets in the Marshalls in December. So this is a full month and a half or so before the landings. Uh, over 600 tons of bombs were dropped on targets in the Marshalls in December alone. So again, taking lessons from the, you know, the hard lessons learned, they know that we'd have to knock these targets out. John, this, this plays a huge part in the lack of casualties that the United States takes both ashore and at sea, you know, from, from any kind of Japanese aircraft, because they, they put a pounding on these islands, don't they? Big time. I mean, everybody had their role in the B-24s coming from, from, uh, you know, from Basio, the, uh, the fast carriers with all of these close strikes that are going to be coming in. Um, and of course, eventually the, the surface ships, that are just going to batter these places, um, such as we really hadn't seen in the Pacific War just yet. But, of course, we're going to see it exceeded later. Uh, so you've got cruisers. You've got, I think, three or four battleships involved, something like that, um, including Pennsylvania, I think. And, and you know, they're just going to be clobbering these little islands. These are not big places, of course. I mean, Kwajalein um, is, I think, 600 to 900 yards at width at that point and about 300 yards as it comes up to its fish hook. Um, you know, obviously you've got destroyers, you've got, uh, you know, Seth, you mentioned uh, the, those uh, overarmed LCIs that are basically just sort of saturation weapons. 
um you know in, in addition to to all this other stuff that you're going to have too because the when the seventh division lands initially um they're going to land in these smaller outlying islands that are nearby Kwajalein and set up their artillery okay so that's happening you know not even the main invasion but that's the initial operations and so you're you're adding your own organic artillery to the mix and so you know as as one soldier uh put it when he when he was going in i mean it seemed like to him i mean that that Kwajalein had been sort of just picked up 20,000 feet and then just dropped um that it was just such a <laughs> shambles um and it could really the same thing with Roy Nimur too for the most part uh although it's a I think a little trickier there you know on, on what is sort of the lagoon side too but um you know <laughs> the, the the problem though is that all this firepower creates a lot of smoke and dust and mist and 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 so visibility is really quite limited it makes it uh, somewhat difficult to maneuver, and then uh, once you're ashore, it creates a bramble. Uh, so some of the fire is more effective than others, and ironically enough, in my view, um, it's the small caliber stuff that really tended to be a little bit more effective um, because some of the the larger shells were really designed for ship to ship, you know, uh, uh, strikes. And so, at least according to SLA Marshall, who is you know, one of the combat observers here. Um, and also, I, I found a uh, an account by a, uh, a Navy ordnance specialist or an Army ordnance specialist. Sorry, um, and they they claim that some of the bigger shells, like the fourteen inches, and which were were sort of um, either bouncing and and moving on and and going on the sea, or going through a target or whatever, and weren't necessarily exploding for maximum effort. But the totality of all this, nonetheless, is just suffocating to the Japanese. So. They, there aren't that many who are necessarily killed in the initial bombardment, but they are suppressed, and and uh, and also their communications are just gone. Um, yeah, any kind of command and control, and of course, it's an incredibly unpleasant experience for them too. So I think they're they're sort of shaken. Um, so it is, I think, the most effective pre-invasion bombardment to that point in the war. Um, I think it'll be exceeded by Guam later. Jesse Oldendorf, I think, is going to become really first among equals in understanding a lot about pre-invasion bombardments. And so this is all part of the learning process that we've talked about. Um, sure. You know, th this is how we go in. This is how we we saturate a place to, to prepare it for the troops. Without it, you can imagine it's going to be something of a bloodbath. So I think that the firepower plays an enormous role. A huge role. And it, 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 it's to your point, it's supportive and it's also can be a bit of a hindrance as as we're going to see when the mm -hmm. seventh ID gets ashore in Kwajalein, it kind of you know slows things down, if you will. Mm -hmm. Just to give a small example, the fast carriers who are now under the command of Mark Mitcher uh, destroyed an estimated ninety two of the estimated one hundred and ten Japanese aircraft in the Marshalls by the end of January. Yeah, I mean, and that's the key to the whole thing. <laughs> Because yeah. if those aircraft are there, now the ships are in peril. Yeah, and not that Japanese submarines are not, you know, a threat. But but really, let's be honest. When you're talking about a fleet of, of 297 ships and our own submarines too, um, you know that that that's certainly going to suppress that to some extent. Um, yeah. But the, the 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 end of those aircraft, I mean, right there gives you the initiative to do more or less whatever you want. Uh, so now, also from from the point of view of a ground soldier, I don't have to worry about. Japanese airstrikes. Um, I don't really have to worry about my supply line. Um, as we've seen in previous invasions, sometimes uh, the presence of Japanese air, most notably like Guadalcanal and also Japanese surface, is going to imperil our supply lines sometimes. 
we don't have to worry about that here. Uh, so it means we can we can unleash precisely the firepower we want. We can reinforce as we wish, and we can certainly have the initiative. It may not feel like it once you're ashore as an average soldier because it's a really tough job to root these guys out. But still, you really have the initiative. Yeah, it, it's 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 you have complete and utter mastery of the sea and air. And when you have that, Bill, you, you can attest to this. When you have that control, you can do pretty much anything you want. And that's exactly what happens here, isn't it? It's all about fire maneuver. And, and when you have complete control of the sea and air, maneuver is kind of freed up. Then it becomes about fire. And so that's kind of the question that's going to happen as these landings take place. Now, as we said before, this is the world's largest atoll, 66 miles long, 20 miles wide at the widest part. I'll show you a picture here again. This is the 66 miles long part. And um, <clears throat> sorry about that. Here we go. 66 miles long like this and 20 miles wide. Roy Namur is up here. The island of Kwajalein with the 7th Infantry Division down here. By the way, where my daughter was born, Fort Ord later. That's a jump ahead. But anyway, the um, you know, this this place is enormous. And the, to defend this amount of territory, the Japanese fielded a force that was large on paper. The Japanese Admiral Kobayashi, not Kobayashi Maru, but Kobayashi Masami had over 28,000 men at his disposal. And because of the vast spread of the atoll, those men were located all across the map. And so um, the, he had people on Woche and Melalap, as, as everybody kind of assumed were going to be there. That's why the, you know, Nimitz's subordinates wanted to attack those first to suppress that, those targets. And, and Nimitz said, no, we're going to go straight to Kwajalein. Kobayashi placed the majority of his men on Woche and Molap, which means this is a micro example of island hopping. So we're hopping the islands that have the most Japanese. I'm not sure we knew the extent to which this would work as Nimitz was planning it, but it worked, Seth. It does. It does. And, and John, I, I want you to talk about the 7th Infantry, and you, you touched about it. You touched on it, rather, briefly, in that they don't just, and the Marines do the same thing at Roy Namor, but to Bill's point, this is island hopping to a you know, micro extent, in, in that the 7th ID lands people on other islands first, before they actually land on Kwajalein to set up their artillery. But before we get to that, and viewers and listeners are familiar with the 7th Infantry because we did a couple episodes on the Aleutians. But tell us who they were uh, and, and, mm -hmm. and encapsulate who the 7th ID is, who's their commanding officer, Chris. He's a, he's a bit of a firebrand himself, uh, Corlett. So, yeah, let let lay it on us. Who are Yeah, they? so they're called the Hourglass Division, and they were combat experiences. You know, you guys have done Aleutians episodes, and so um, I won't necessarily repeat everything that was probably discussed there, but just as a reminder – um, they're the ones who really had to, to bear the brunt of the invasion of Attu in May 1943, which is the only cold weather campaign in the history of the Pacific War. Um, and it's it's actually on par with Iwo Jima in terms of the American casualty rates versus the Japanese rates. Now, to be sure, most uh, you know a lot of our casualties there are trench foot, pneumonia, you know, condition oriented casualties. But still, it's, it's something of a bloodbath. So the Seventh ID was combat experience, but it had also it had lost its uh, its commander, its its commanding general, uh, Albert Albert Brown, Burphy Brown, 
have been relieved, I think, personally, quite unfairly, and I, I outline this a bit, I go into it in, uh, in Fire and Fortitude, the first volume of my trilogy, um, I think it was a series of miscommunications and, and whatnot, but regardless, um, so there'd been something of a leadership vacuum, and here comes Charles uh, Corlett, whose um, nickname in the Army was Cowboy Pete. And you mentioned he's a bit of a firecracker, and he really is. He's Corlett is somebody who's who's trained these guys very, very well, I think, and uh, it is certainly going to be a dynamic combat commander. He's somebody who's quite sure of his opinions, but I'm really saying that in a in a kind of a positive way uh, because he knows his stuff. He is quite solicitous with his troops. Um, I, I think he's built some some level of loyalty, um, certainly among, among a lot of folks who have been quite devoted to General Brown, understandably so. Uh, Corlett has made the division his own, and he loves the he loves aphorisms, he loves um, pep talks, uh, he loves pep talk memos, and and all this kind of stuff. He's I, I thought it was fascinating. One of the things I found is a memo he wrote, and this is kind of unusual for 1943 and 44. He's telling his guys. Hey, you know what? Um, smoking is degrading your physical condition, and and so I think you guys need to suppress that. And I'm like, wow, this is during World War II, but he's very much ahead of his time, um, you know. And so he's he's the kind of guy who's going to be hands on, you know, on the ground, almost um, to the detriment in a way, because during the Battle of Kwajalein, um, you know, some of his guys are saying, hey, you know, I don't think you really need to be in this danger zone. We need you on your feet. Uh, so, but that's that's always a tough call for a commander, for a ground combat commander, is when to show yourself at the front, when to be at your HQ, where to place yourself. Um, I think Corlett handles that pretty well. But I also thought I'd say he's prepared his guys for this invasion. The Seventh Division, I've often called them uh, sort of the big red one of the Pacific. Um, they're they're really a go-to unit that's going to see a lot of combat by the time this war is over. Um, and of course, they still exist today. They've been, you know, activated, deactivated over the years, but the, the hourglass uh, exists today. So I think there's a lot of unit pride in what they accomplish here. And Kwajalein, I think more so than Atu, is when you see um, a, a kind of a, a, a real professional core, professionalism about the 7th Division that's going to make it this go-to unit. Not that you don't see it at Atu as much, but it was a more challenging circumstance um, mm. in which you're learning. It's your first combat. In this one, they're going to fight this really incremental battle with the exact right small unit tactics um, that is going to, I think, minimize casualties. And that matters to Corlett, uh, you know, and I, I think that that's, that's something to their credit. He uh, he was this this is a bit of a unique set of circumstances in that, you know, at Basio, we talked about Julian Smith's battle plan was essentially thrown out by Holland Smith. Mm -hmm. He took it and crumpled it up, threw it in the trash. That's not the case here. Uh, Corlett is given essentially a free hand in figuring out, because I mean, rightfully so, I mean, he's a divisional commander, a free hand in figuring out how he's going to land his people, where he's going to land his people, how the battle is going to theoretically unfold. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, he's 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 very much hands-on, and he's decided, all right, we're going to put two regiments ashore on whatever this western beach of, of Kwajalein is, and it's, what, maybe 600 yards or something like that. So you're talking about quite a bottleneck, uh, and his plan is to, to basically have, um, I think it's the 767 Tank Battalion, provide your armor support as these sort of firing platforms, in addition, ingeniously, to the LDTs. Um, and, it, and I think in this battle heavy, they're 37 millimeter. I think they have yep, 37 they millimeters. So it's, it's really quite ingenious, excellent firing platform. 
Um, and so you're 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 operating in this bramble of shattered trees, um, shattered uh, uh, wooden buildings, some shattered concrete buildings, um, tank trenches, um, fighting holes here and there. And so there's a lot of back clearing. Uh, I think Corlett had envisioned that too. It's a small place, so you can afford to do that. So when you got two infantry regiments ashore, I mean, you know, that's 6,000 guys or so, uh, in addition to their tanks and the engineers you're going to have. So, um, you know, the, the worst of the fighting happens sort of to the, the that last, uh, maybe three days in, when you're at that last third of the island, once, you're, once it kind of curves up towards that fish hook, that's where you're seeing some of the little bit more prepared Japanese defenses. But I think at each turn, um, most of these infantry units are, are ready as much as you can be for this kind of fighting. Another example I'd give is that the typical squad is usually operating with two BAR guys. Um, and I, I really think that's vital because your uh, your 30 caliber machine gun support may or may not really impact much. If, if, uh, if you and I are 15, 20 yards apart and we can't see each other in, the, in this battlefield, um, you know, visibility, uh, obviously, that kind of foliage and whatever is really going to minimize the effect of maybe the, the supporting machine gun fire. Uh, and so a Browning Automatic Rifleman has something of that, that kind of mobile firepower that we can use if we're clearing out a dugout, a trench line, a, a little, uh, you know, a little pillbox, whatever we call it. I mean, this is it's it's very much a kind of eyeball to eyeball fight, which isn't always the case in modern war. But this one is intimate. Um, I, I described it as fighting at handshake distance in in many cases, and that that is about as hardcore as it gets. Yeah, I mean, because of the you know, and we'll get to that in a second. But because of the artillery and the naval gunfire, to your point, it it blew up so much stuff that the guys that the GIs are literally stumbling upon Japanese defenses and Japanese spider holes and bunkers and whatever the case may be. Not unlike some of the fighting on Basio as it was, you know, a couple mm -hmm. months before. Um, now you talked about it briefly on the 31st of January, uh, the seventh starts off with a small assault on three neighboring islands. Um, they, they gave these guys, these islands, uh, Americanized names they because did. they couldn't pronounce some of these islands. I, uh, I couldn't either. What I do they call it? Lie. Yeah, yeah, no lie. <laughs> Carter, Cecil, and Chauncey, I believe, is what they called these these places. Yeah. And uh, they land there to to basically, like you were saying, just set up artillery, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you basically set up your artillery batteries. They become a reasonably secure platform. And actually, I think this had been done in the Gilberts too. Um, so you'd already seen a little bit of precedent for this, but it's it's a really, I think, ingenious way of using your uh, your division's organic firepower because I mean artillery is the the key killer on the on the battlefield and wounder, of course. and and uh, in this case, you're talking about artillery batteries that are uh, that are so well trained um that that, that that you have a kind of rotation system. So you've got four guns per per battery. You're, you're rotating with three shooting, one is being serviced, and all this is happening over the course of like an hour. Um, mm -hmm. There's one tragic circumstance where there's a uh, either either a, an explosion in the in the tube or or a, a short run of some kind, you know. So you, you do have some loss of life among the the artillery crewmen, uh, but for the most part, this is a pretty secure platform. So um, you you constantly have that like the forward rifle companies have this to call upon as they're moving all across Kwajalein 
throughout the entire battle. The communications are, are reasonably good. And you also have naval fire, too, uh, primarily destroyers that are going to be in the mix as well. And I think um, Corlett is going to have a really good kind of uh, institutional muscle memory about that. Both things, you know, the both means of firepower once eventually he deploys to Europe and, uh, and commands 19th Corps there. But, uh, yeah, so the, the other interesting thing about this, too, is that SLA Marshall is there um, as a kind of combat observer. And this is really something at the beginning of the kind of group combat interview and the kind of piecing together the story of individual soldiers. So we know a lot about what this fighting was like because of uh, Marshall's efforts to document it. And, and right down to the individual rifleman level, which a lot of it is really quite fascinating. And the 7th already had a little bit of a tradition for this, too, because you had seen a different officer do much of the same thing in the aftermath of Atu. Uh, and so as an historian, I mean, that's just absolute gold. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, no doubt. I mean, you know, firsthand accounts, especially fresh after the event, are yeah, right usually washed by yeah. 50 years or 80 years exactly. or something. Yeah. I haven't done a lot of oral histories. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, Bill, the the we talked briefly about the um, naval bombardment before the main landings, and I want to focus on this because you know to to what this factors into a lot what happens on Kwajalein itself. Bill, tell us about uh, February first, the main bombardment. I mean, there's some ships, specifically one, the USS Mississippi, that gets in close to shore. Get laid on us. What happens with the shore bombardment here? Yeah, I actually started at 0618 on the 1st, on February 1st, the main bombardment, under the command of Jesse Oldendorf, as John already mentioned. He moved in ashore and opened fire with no fear of any Japanese aerial onslaught because, you know, of the pre-invasion air attacks and little fear from Japanese shore batteries. Even the dual-purpose guns that the Kwajalein sported the bombardment ships moved in really, really close to the shore to pound the Japanese emplacements. And again, going to the map, you could see how close this can be. So, the, the, you know, the Army is firing artillery from those islands, and the Navy is getting in really close to all the landing beaches, which made a huge difference. So, you know, we realized from, um, from Tarawa, that high explosive shells did little to nothing against these hard targets like bunkers. And so we started firing armor piercing shells. Now to jump ahead, they had mixed results. Sometimes these AP shells when fired against a weaker target than you think is gonna be there, just travel right through the target, sometimes go into the ocean as John said, and pretty much don't do anything. So it was really a mixture of HE and AP that, was, that needed to be used. But the problem was we didn't have real-time intelligence to tell us which targets, which shells were working right on which targets. But the pre-landing pounding was astounding. 7,700 rounds were fired from the bombardment ships. That being said, even with all of that power, the defenders of the island were able to fight tenaciously. While the majority of structures were destroyed, the Japanese themselves, while well, well, we said rattled, this is like a heart attack level of rattle. We're still able to draw American blood, Seth. Yeah, it, some of the some of the GIs described the the Japanese that they encountered as being punch drunk, and and I mean that would make total sense when you're throwing seven thousand seven hundred rounds of artillery fire at a place. You know, you're going to be a little little stoned when you come out of those bunkers. Um, 
So, John, the seventh ID land their landings go exceedingly well. I mean, it, it, it it's it's like picture perfect. Every just about everything that could go right does. I mean, tell tell us about that yeah. initial push inshore. <laughs> I know. I mean, we hardly ever say that, right? Everything that could go right, right does. Exactly. It's usually the opposite. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, these two regiments land exactly on time, by the way. It's 7.30 in the morning. And I think that's kind of amazing, given all the dust and smoke and bramble yeah. and all that stuff. Um, and then, you know, they, they move across the island very quickly that first um, day or so. And I think one of the reasons is not just because of the bombardment, certainly that's a factor, but also some of the more potent um, uh, pre-built Japanese uh, uh, defenses are in that last third of the island as, as it curves up. And that's sort of where the command structure was, too. Um, but, but always, I mean, regardless of whether we're talking about first day, second day, third day, fourth, um, you're going to have to be doing a lot of back clearing uh, because distressingly often... Um, you know, we, we've advanced 300 yards or whatever, and then we realize that still behind us, 50 yards behind us, there's a couple of Japanese snipers or something who have yep. to be dealt with. So um, you really have to be quite deliberate with this. And and I think there, there's no place in, in the entire atoll that's more than about 10 or 15 feet above sea level, too. Um, you know, so it's, it's a kind of flatland battle in, in some respects. And then you also have, too, and I, I explore this in... in um, in the book, I talk about the, the Battle of Island Infernos, the differing perspectives of, of uh, naval officers and army officers here. Because as an army officer, um, I would have been trained to employ all my combined arms and to kind of spare uh, lives in order to, to advance deliberately to, uh, to secure an objective that it just makes the most sense. Well, of course, the, the Navy has its own logistics to consider of how often, you know, how you know, long you can keep the fleet uh, on station, whether they're going to be vulnerable to to enemy counterattacks. You, you can't just fritter around there and just hang around, you know, for, for me to <laughs> to take four or five, six days to grab my objective or something. So there's always that natural tension throughout the whole Pacific War. You see it here, too, but I would argue here probably more effectively than anywhere else. Although Holland Smith will sound off, you know, sort of ripping on the on the operations of Kwajalein, I think unfairly. Um especially because he's not really there. Um, but, but you know, the Marines run into a lot of uh, hardcore fighting at Roy Numer as well. They they take more killed in action. And one of the things I argue throughout the whole trilogy is that, yes, Marine and Army doctrine, yes, tended to be different, okay? Right. True. But when the actual combat happened, they tended to fight pretty similarly. And at the, at the actual spear point, there, it was usually tremendous respect uh, between Marines and soldiers, as there should be. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think a lot of this is just sort of white noise, um, you know, at higher levels and at doctrinal level and all that kind of stuff. And I think historians maybe have picked up on that, understandably. Uh, so the 7th ID's fight at Kwajalein is that kind of incremental combined arms fight. And by that, I mean the artillery platform, the tanks that are with you, because um, they're having to try and, you know, get around in this mess too. How we're going to use our machine guns, what we're doing with our grenades, um, how we're organizing our squads, who can see what. This impacts everything. And there's no commander who's going to say, you know what, just just or just butt on ahead, and, you know, regardless mm -hmm. of what. It, and, and how many riflemen are going to follow that order anyway? Um, right. So, yes, of course, you're going to fight this battle incrementally. And I think that's why I think the martial uh, material is so valuable 
because it shows you the real world kind of fight that's developing and the dynamic among the soldiers and leadership and what works and what doesn't. And once you do come to grips with the Japanese, what the nature of that tended to be, which was usually, um, you know, six, seven, eight of us dealing with them in some sort of dug in position um, and fighting against them close enough that we can see them. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. not very common in modern war, but in this case, we can see them. Maybe we can see the expressions on their faces. Maybe they've come out to fight in a last ditch kind of thing. We've had that terrifying kind of Japanese charge to deal with whatever it would be. That's the nature of the combat. So like in the big picture of history, we think of Kwajalein as a, as a sort of a walkover or whatever, or Roy Nemur even too. They're really not for the people who had to do the fighting. Um, And one of the reasons why we can perceive it as such is because they fought so well and they had such great support, fire support and otherwise logistical, um, that they were able to minimize their losses compared to what they could have been, I guess. Mm -hmm. And and to your point, the the fighting is is visceral. I mean, it's it's close in. And some of some of uh, Marshall's quotes, I want to read just a couple here real quick. And this is directly from him. And this will give you a better idea than than any of us could convey because he was there, obviously. He says, quote, the holes were everywhere. Each one had to be searched from close up. Every spot where a man might be hiding had to be stabbed out. So greatly was the beach littered with broken foliage that it was like looking through a haystack for a few poison needles, unquote. He goes on to say, quote, the fire which cut the men down came from the spider holes farther up the line. It was the kind of bitter going that made it necessary for the junior leaders to prod their men constantly. The leader of the third squad had been trying to get his men forward against the fire. Private first class John Traeger got up, rushed forward about 10 yards, hit the dirt, fired a few shots with his BAR and crumpled with a bullet in his head, unquote. So, I mean, exactly to your point, this is close, visceral, nasty, dig them out, hole by hole, position by by position fighting. That you see in the early part of the Pacific War, I say early, I guess this is the kind of the middle ground here. You see it at Basio, you see it here, you see it somewhat in the Marianas when we get, especially in the Saipan, where we're having, and Tanian too, really, where you're having to literally dig these people out of these friggin' positions. Uh, somewhat so on Peleliu, because you know, you're getting up into the cave fighting and things like that. Yeah. But this is really where you're literally having, you know, I, I envision taking a friggin spoon and having to dig these people outside of these dang positions and it's it it's not quite to that level later on in the war because it's just this nasty you know attritional horrible slugfest but right here this is some nasty 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 stuff so john as the infantry advances the resistance to your point it gets tougher and this is not unlike any other pacific island in the war but here in kwajalein so far the casualties have been relatively light but it starts to get heavier and nastier as you get closer to the Japanese command post, which is really no surprise. Um, tell us about some of this this latter part of the Sevens fighting here on Kwajalein. Yeah, so it kind of climaxes, and especially on the, the sort of the afternoon hours of the third day, uh, where you see some of the worst of the fighting. The fourth day is often called mop-up, and I hate that term, but it, but it, it basically means back-clearing uh, for the most part. But yeah, the third day is when you see a lot of this, this what's been leading toward climax and and the reason is because um, the, the buildings the Japanese are in or the positions they have would have been a little bit more firm, a little bit more pre-prepared, um, a little bit more structure, a little bit more concrete, a little bit more coral or whatever. 
um, which which then obviously gives them a little bit more potency. And also, I think you're, you're dealing with some of the last of the the truly military trained Japanese opposition, because I think we tend to forget that probably about a third to 40 percent of their manpower is Korean or Japanese civilian laborers who are of almost no military value and don't necessarily want to fight. And of course, as an American soldier or a Marine on Roy Namur or whatever, I don't know who's who, you know, really, I just know who may present a threat or whatever. Um, most of these other guys are, are you know, basically um, naval troops. It's it's really the Navy's Balawak, Imperial Navy's Balawak to f- be fighting here. Um, so they're they're pretty potent, you know. And mm-hmm. and uh, of course, we all know the Japanese ethos to fight to the end rather than surrender. Uh, and of course, once that gets going, we've seen it on a lot of battlefields by now. The Americans certainly are, are only too willing to oblige them in, in killing as many as possible. There's definitely a major element of racial and cultural hatred to this, too, only adding to that. But there's also fear, a natural fear. And, and if we can't see and we don't know and, and the threat could be from three feet away or whatever, um, we're not going to take chances. And we've got all that firepower at our disposal. So that's that's really the nature of this last climax of the fighting is it's really it's bitterest it's it's sort of the 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 proverbial darkest before the dawn kind of thing um so it's it's in the the fourth day that uh the corlette you know can can radio turner and say you know the obviously the the objective is secured and turner lauds him with a with a congratulatory message and and all this good stuff so you know the, the americans have been fortunate in that sense that they've been able to wrap this thing up in four or so days and i think it's because of the the, the size of the islands obviously mm-hmm. um where there are larger islands in the pacific war it's not going to work out this way uh the japanese are going to there's going to be people on leyte fighting for months and months and months um kwajalein's a smaller place and so you really can kind of annihilate and snuff out the opposition in, the, in less than a week and you're not always going to have that luxury but i do i do think that in the longer term, the 7th Division learns a lot of really good lessons about close combat, about what kind of leadership works and doesn't. They'd already had at Atu, but, um, you know, they're going to be major players at Leyte. And, I mean, that is just a hellacious kind of fight. And I think that the 7th is sort of prepared for that. And, and of course, they're eventually going to be under different leadership there, too, because Corlett, mm-hmm. as I mentioned, is going to be redeployed to Europe. So uh, General Arnold, who was the commander of division artillery, is going to take over for him. And I think that's a little insight into the effectiveness of the artillery, um, yeah, yeah. especially in, in uh, at, you know, at Kwajalein. Um, so, John, you know, we talked about combined arms, you know, or you talked about combined arms. And, and the fact that the Army, or the 7th specifically, is employing this, you know, really to a, a fine point here. One aspect that we haven't really talked too much about so far in this entire podcast, and we've mentioned it here and there, is armor. But armor plays a big part in this battle, specifically by knocking out some of these positions that are, shall we say, tough nuts to crack. Uh, These specifically uh, M4 Shermans are coming ashore, or they've come ashore, and they're being deployed and employed in really, really effective ways that so far to this point in the Pacific War, we haven't seen this type of armor employment to this fine degree yet, right? Yeah, and I think there's, like in our popular memory of the Pacific War, there's a another myth that I've sort of attacked that that, there, that armor was not really much a part of the war. Um, actually, as the war gets bigger, you see more and more armor used. By the time the war climaxes uh, on Okinawa, uh, and in the Philippines, 
you know, you've got division-sized armored units operating. They're just not organized the same way they are in Europe. So at Kwajalein, you have a battalion-sized unit that can handle this whole mission, basically attached to a division. Uh, but this is sort of like, when you think about what a, what a, the, the sort of armor evangelists of the, the interwar period would have envisioned for armor, this is the antithesis, because you would have envisioned, you know, big armored breakthroughs, big tank battles, maneuver warfare and all this. Actually, what this is, it's one or two tanks operating in this wilderness, um, more or less on their own, although in tandem with the infantry so much as you can see one another. Um, and fortunate in this case, because the Japanese don't possess a lot of anti-tank weapons, especially at the individual soldier level. Now, that eventually will change somewhat. But uh, so you have decent survivability. Your biggest problem as, a, as an armored tank, as a, as a tank commander, is your tank being out of action because of the terrain. Um, you know, the, throwing a tread, going down into a tank trench or, you know, that kind of thing. But basically, with the, 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 the pace of the fighting is you're going to have a tank or two, just like you said, Seth, um, nail some of those tougher targets just with 75 millimeter fire. And most of these are, I think, M4A1s, the, the basic uh, Sherman tank. They're really effective here, though, in providing you with that on-site firepower. Um, you know, and so the, the hard part is communicating between infantry and tanks. And so in a way, they're, they're kind of operating independently even alongside each other, if that makes any sense. Uh, mm -hmm. Just again, I know I keep emphasizing this because of the confusing wilderness of that terrain um mm. that it's it's very confining and by the most accounts of uh, whether tanker or infantry uh, you, you know they say you're lucky to see 30 yards um so it's it's very much a confining kind of thing but i i do think the tanks save a lot of lives there um yeah. because you know if you're just throwing infantry at these blockhouses or whatever you're, you're going to take higher casualties, and the tanks really do, uh, um, you know, minimize a lot of the Japanese resistance. And before, before, just so the viewers understand, uh, we do. John is unfortunately going to have to pop out a little early on this on this broadcast. But I want you to talk about one more thing before you go, John. Holland Smith and Corlett, they are not friends, are they? And after the no, battle, you 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 alluded to this very very briefly. You touched <laughs> on it, but you didn't go into detail. But I want you to, if you can. Um, mm -hmm. Smith kind of takes a dump on Corlett and the Seventh Infantry after the Battle of Kwajalein. And to be fair, the Seventh had performed marvelously. They did exactly what they were told to do. They did it in an efficient amount of time. They did really. There wasn't really anything that anybody could complain about, but Holland Smith finds a thing to complain about, and he and Corlett are not, they're not friends, are they? No, they're not. I mean, Holland Smith would find, you know, something to complain about with, say, the Battle of Midway from a naval perspective, you know, or, um, you know, I don't know, Omaha Beach from an Army perspective. Any other service, they're just, they just stink, you know I mean? That's, that's basically his <laughs> viewpoint, which is so unfortunate. Uh, so on some levels, he really hated the Navy and the Army, and especially the Army. Mm -hmm. And um, so he, he constantly, I mean, if we pull back and let's think about this, guys. I mean, the 4th Marine Division and the 7th Infantry Division both did exactly what they're supposed to do. They both fought extremely well. They captured their objectives. They did this, and this was, of course, such a force multiplier 
in helping win the Pacific War and accelerate the timetable, all that good stuff. And so Holland Smith, being Holland Smith, will zero in as, oh, the 4th Marine Division, it was just remarkable. 7th Division, uh, nothing. you know. And so he comes in, like you said, he kind of craps on the whole thing. He writes to uh, Archer Vandegrift, his, his friend, who's now Commandant of the Marine Corps, uh, that supposedly, quote, a midget with a pop gun could have taken, um, you know, the, the entire 7th Division area on the first day and, you know, this, this kind of nonsense. Um, so Corlett is not the kind of person who's going to take this. Um, there's already some level of tension, uh, I think, for the idea of having a Marine officer in command of Army soldiers. Uh, but I think if it had been a different Marine officer like Roy Geiger, for instance, most army uh officers would have been okay with this because it's smith there's already tension and so corlett realizes this corlett being feisty uh remember his nickname cowboy pete he pushes back so for instance um he'd already previous to this when uh when he heard holland smith uh criticizing ralph smith who you you know of course holland smith will later relieve on saipan and all that the commander of the 27th division corlett says you know, something in the effect of you, SOB, if I ever hear you talking like me, that, that you know, that there's going to be trouble. And, and and to Holland Smith's credit, he kind of lets that go. He's like, all right, you were insubordinate, but, you know, whatever. Um, in this case, Holland Smith in the aftermath of Kwajalein battle is talking to war correspondents and basically, you know, as Seth so aptly put it, kind of crapping on the 7th Infantry Division's performance. And then Corlett hops right in and says, well, actually, he wasn't here. And I mean, any reporter right there is like, well, now I know what that means. But that's a, that to me is Holland Smith. He's a, he's a kind of person who's willing to sound off about things that he doesn't really know what he's talking about based on his own kind of narrow perspective. Um, and yes, I mean, anybody who knows me knows that I, I don't have a high opinion of him. And I certainly beat him up in my books, though, trying to be fair. Um, but it's hard to because I, I don't think that. He grasps um, what really is important, that the Japanese are the enemy, hello, um, right. and that soldiers are your partners and your friends and your comrades and vice versa, and you should be operating this way. Um, so I think it's unfortunate. So, yeah, Corlett pushes back, and I think that that earns him a lot of respect in other Army in the Pacific Circles, particularly among, like, Lieutenant General Robert Richardson, who has a, you know, very tough position in the course of the war, being kind of a trainer and administrator of Army forces under Nimitz's control, but chafing at that control sometimes. And, and, uh, and Corlett clearly performs very well. And obviously, mm -hmm. you know, that's what gets him redeployed to Europe and promoted to, to Corps Command, where he's where he's going to be a good Corps Commander, too. Um, so we, what you're seeing there maybe is that is the sort of foundation of what's later going to blow up in the whole Smith yep. versus Smith thing, unfortunately. Yep. And that's that's what is exactly what I was going to say is what you're seeing now is that seed has been planted. Yeah. The, and it's so the... regrettable. It's it's so avoidable. I mean, Holland Smith, and I, I've said this many times, I, I think he would have been very useful to the war effort as a, an, an amphibious training specialist because mm -hmm. he certainly knew something about amphibious warfare, but he really had no business being in command of, of uh, large formations of Marines or soldiers at that kind of level, especially a combined service force. Um, it's just I, I don't know. Why? Because he creates so many headaches for Nimitz, too. Um, yeah, I don't does. know why they put up with him as long as they did, honestly. I, I, he, I wasn't personally in He's what, he wasn't called for nothing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he, he sort of embraces that nickname and the persona, and I think that says something, too. Oh. 
Um, it's, it's just an odd deal. <laughs> I, I can't help but remembering at, after Desert Storm how much Gen Army General Schwarzkopf regaled Marine performance, the exact opposite of what Howland Mad Smith did during this battle. Absolutely. And such a different kind of perspective. Exactly. And I think and I think when we look at World War II as well, you know, almost all the good commanders recognized that and had yeah. tremendous respect. Any army soldier worth his salt should understand and and recognize marine valor and the importance mm -hmm. of the marines and and also vice versa and myth is just i think he's kind of an outlier so i say later you know when there's tension at saipan or whatever it's it's really a holland smith problem it's not really an army marine corps problem though it becomes that um in, in part because of smith's actions in a way and i think the other thing i think it's unfortunate too and we can always talk about this in an episode about that but as long as we're on the guy um what bothers me he bothers me a little bit from a Marine perspective, too, because um, the Marines who, who fight in the Pacific, almost all of them have been through boot camp and everything that means. Or they have, have been through the Naval Academy or some kind of ROTC scholarship. Um, Smith sort of adopted that persona of the tough Marine without really earning it in terms of training or, or combat. And I, I see that as really hard to, to overlook. I, I think that's not mm -hmm. to his favor. Yeah, he certainly doesn't win friends and influence people, as they said in Vietnam. That's <laughs> no, it. Uh, win in hearts and minds, I should say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Win in hearts sure. and minds. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and when when you uh, alienate your 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 partner there, you know it, that that doesn't speak too well of your ability to lead. Number one and number two, you're gonna need these fellows again. And and Ooh. you know they um to your point, I never knew a soldier, a combat soldier from World War II, who said who ever had anything bad to say about the Marine Corps. And I never had, knew a combat Marine from World War II who ever had anything bad to say about the dog faces, yep. uh, you know, uh, of the Pacific or Europe, whatever the case may be. Me too. But and it was a bond never. there. Absolutely. Absolutely. They're all in, they're all in the same, as we like to say, they all had to take a bite of the same shit sandwich. Absolutely. And it's just a matter of how you dealt with it and how you, you know, and everybody knew what the real deal was. So, yep. But John, I know you got a role, and uh, I want to say personally, we're going to see you again on 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 some future episodes. We'll start Great. earlier so we can get you in, in longer <laughs> next time. But uh, thanks for appearing with us today, and uh, it, you provided invaluable uh, insight onto the Army's role here. And we're gonna we're gonna have you back on for sure several more times if you're willing to do it. Oh, I'd love to. It sounds great. This is just awesome. I, I really enjoy this and and uh, laud you guys for shedding so much light on the pacific war it's great stuff thanks and it helps to have uh well-informed guests with us too <laughs> it does indeed so sorry we had to john had to pop out uh but he has he has classes to teach he's got work to do uh, as we all do but but he's he, he's got he's got work to do so he unfortunately had to pop out early he will be back uh he's going to participate in several episodes this season and we're very very glad and lucky to have him but there were a couple of things bill that that because uh, we were trying to maximize his time that that we glossed over that i think are important to the nature of the fighting he kept john kept hitting the 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 close proximity the vicious visceral nature of the fighting there's a couple of quotes from from marshall uh that relate that very thing can you lay on us the story of pfc julian guterres what 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 is what does he do yeah you know john talked about the importance of the bars but but most of the soldiers of course were just carrying m1 garands 
And Private First Class Julian Guterres was one of those. So he would stand above the hole and fire down into it. What happens in one case, as they're standing over these spider holes, is the hole exploded when he fired into it. And the Japanese inside turned him, turned a grenade on himself. And the man's shattered arm came flying out of the hole and hit Guterres on the shoulder, splattering blood all over his face and clothing. The arm bounded off and fell to the side. As Guterres looked at it, fascinated and horror-stricken, he sees another bayonet rising out of a patch of fronds just beyond the first one. And with, with that arm still, fingers still quivering, you know, that's kind of got Guterres' gaze locked on it because it's still moving. He yells to a man behind him. That man relays, you know, relays a great grenade. And Guterres pitches the grenade with all of his might into that patch of fronds with that second bayonet sticking out of it. It erupts in a shower of palm leaves and blood and flesh. Again, he gets showered with all this stuff from a second Japanese soldier. or These were sailors in this case. And so Guterres reels over towards the lagoon, thinking he's going to wash himself off of the blood. But before he can reach the water, in sight of all the other men, he heaves. He starts vomiting all over the beach. Minutes pass before he could gather himself together again and join his squad, which is quite understandable, Seth. Yeah, I mean, that that just that that is a very graphic description of the close nature of the fighting here. You know, it is dig them out hole by hole, literally hole by hole by hole by hole. And and these people, you know, we've we've made it made this point a thousand times and we're going to do it a thousand more. They don't give up. And if you don't eliminate them as you pass them by, they're going to kill you or your brothers behind you. And and it's just this constant dig them out, dig them out, dig them out as, as it goes along. Now, part of the Kwajalein was only part of the overall Marshall Islands campaign. You know, the invasion of Kwajalein and the little outlying, outlying artillery position islands, whatever you want to call them, uh, was the Army's role. Now, the United States Marine Corps also had a role in this operation as well. Um, the assault on Roy Namur, there's actually two islands, Roy and Namur, but the, the Marine Corps and I combined them into one Roy Namur because they're connected by a little bitty causeway. Um, it sees the uh, ba baptism of fire of the 4th, number 4, 4th Marine Division. This is their first combat. Um, and and you're going to hear a lot about the 4th Marine Division, especially in the Marianas and then later at Iwo Jima, of course. Um Neighboring Roy Namor had taken had taken a beating very similar to that of Kwajalein. Uh, for three days before the assault, U.S. Navy aircraft and the Fast Carrier Task Force pummeled the Japanese positions on the two islands. The 2,300-yard long and 900-yard wide island took a pounding from aircraft as well as ships. Like at Kwajalein, U.S. battleships pulled in close ashore and threw 14-inch shells at targets, trying their best to obliterate them. Uh, again, like Kwajalein, Bill, like you had talked about, the AP, while it worked on hardened positions like concrete positions and blockhouses and the things like that, not everything was a hardened position that these battleships are shooting at. And these big 14-inch rounds are just right through these suckers, and they're not doing a whole heck of a lot of damage. But still, to their point... They're pulling in so close that uh, the Marines call Rear Admiral Connolly. They give him the nickname that sticks with him through the rest of the war, by the way, close in Con Connolly, because he brings his shore bombardment ships 
so close inshore that they're some of them are taking rifle shots from the Japanese ashore. Um, but as opposed to Kwajalein, Bill, the, the naval gunfire here, even though the big rounds pass through a lot of the targets, the fire here is a little more effective than at Kwajalein, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. Most of the structures are are gone. You know, 6,000 tons of munitions were used to, to get rid of those structures. So that's a lot of munitions. Now, let's keep this in mind. In the case of Basio, in the case of Kwajalein, in the case of Roynamore, we're talking about islands that are roughly one mile by a little bit more, you know, you're talking about nautical miles here, 2,300 yards, 2,000 yards to a nautical mile by, let's say, 900 yards wide. And it's taking a division of infantrymen, a division for a piece of land a mile wide to take them. And this is incredible. You just It's hard to get your head around that, particularly as you think about current you know, numbers of divisions in the Army and Marine Corps. And, you know, could we do this today? Something like that. I mean, it just, it's really amazing. But in this case, the Marines had captured several nearby islets from which their artillery also added chaos on Roy Namor, just as the 7th ID had captured surrounding islands to use artillery you know, as uh, during their, and to prepare their, for their attack on Kwajalein. So, Seth, before the Marines landed, the Navy deployed the first teams of underwater demolition teams. We talked about the need for UDTs during the landings on Basio, and we talked about the fact that we would develop UDT teams because of those lessons learned. But initially, UD teams were, were, were built out of CB units, so they were still rated as CBs. And so, but they swam in, they reported the coral reef would not obstruct the marine landing craft. Hallelujah. Yeah, really. We learned in the very next operation how important it was to understand that so the beaches would be clear of obstacles. But a confused offshore drama unfolded as the LVTs carrying the Marines mixed up with each other, causing the assigned landing waves to be discombobulated and unorganized. The LSTs carrying the Marines and their LVTs had been ordered to move closer to the beach so as to reduce the amount of time the LVTs would be under fire. This order was a surprise and added confusion, which caused a delay to the Marine landing, Seth. Mm -hmm. And you know what John was saying, that the 7th ID landed on Kwajalein at exactly the precise time that they were supposed to, and their operation unfolded mm -hmm. basically almost to the minute, according to their orders. This is, I think, I don't think, I know, this is the uh, employment of a brand new division. Uh, they don't have, they have some cadre in there and from other, you know, first and second Marine divisions, but not much. So, I mean, the vast majority of this division are green as, is green as grass. And the 7th ID is a veteran unit. And this is, I think, is a perfect example of that. Uh, not that the Marines, you know, don't do well ashore because they do, but this is their first assault under fire. And it shows, you know, it, it is kind of a mess that they get when they get ashore it's it's just it's it's chaotic um at 11 11 uh the first lvts hove into view of the islands and were accompanied by the lci gunboats that we talked about earlier as the lvts near the shore the lcis opened up with devastating if not inaccurate fire these are not uh 
precision weapons here. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so we're just going to shoot everything and hope we're going to kill everything in this path, in this beaten zone suppressing right fire. here. Yeah. <laughs> That's what suppressing fire does, right? Keep their yeah. heads down. Fine. So when the LCIs, you know, as I said, this it's this, this is suppressing fire to the nth degree. And as inaccurate yeah. as it may have been, and it was, it did some good because when the Marines landed ashore, they were the ones that were describing the Japanese as punch drunk. You know, the Japanese would come if if they weren't immediately killed in their emplacements, they're coming out to fight and they almost looked like they were blasted you know literally they were staggering around and they were of course immediately eliminated by the marines um again like kwajalein individual japanese or groups of them did remain in destroyed or partially destroyed emplacements off to surprising marines after they advanced past the supposed knocked out emplacements so this is nothing new uh you know it, it, it again they're gonna have to go hole to hole sometimes backwards yeah yeah because they you know there were guys in holes that they bypassed that they didn't see and didn't take care of. That's and John uh, called that cleanup operations. But yeah, it had to happen a lot. The 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 landings now now to get to get to the the meat and potatoes here. This is a fast operation here, Bill. Even though the mm -hmm. Japanese are putting up spirited resistance, and they are, this is a very fast operation. Despite the hindrance of the defenders behind their lines, the Marines advance rapidly, obtaining their D-Day goal. By the end of the day, they were supposed to obtain this goal. They obtained it in 20 minutes. So, I mean, mm -hmm. as we said, as, as much of a cluster as it was getting to shore. Getting ashore. Yeah. Once they get ashore, they go. They they absolutely yeah. fly. Uh, and a trend that continues for the rest of this operation, the Marines had secured Roy by 1735 that evening. Minor follow-up mopping up operations uh, followed, but the fighting on Roy was essentially over. Now, more, however, is a little bit of a tougher nut to crack, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Now, now to, I don't know if they, they use this expression back in World War II, but the modern expression is phase line. So you're given an objective, and then we'll just label it phase line alpha. And so at the end of day one, you're supposed to be at phase line alpha, and they find themselves at phase line alpha 20 minutes. And they wouldn't have called it alpha. They had a different phonetic alphabet in World War II. But they're there 20 minutes. And by the way, different services had different phonetic alphabets yeah. in World War II before it was standardized. But they find that thing 20 minutes, uh, you know, into into after landing. It's incredible. So things seem to be going really, really well uh, on, on Roy. But uh, let's see. But Namor... Just as confused as they had been, on, were just as confused as they had been on Roy. Only 62 of the 110 LVTs were in position at the line of departure, and not wanting to let the Japanese ashore have a break, Admiral Connolly sent the Marines in as they were, which was disorganized. But despite the disorganization, the resistance offered at the water's edge was virtually non-existent. The problem with this, of course, is you get squad. One, you know, squad A, one and two from company B, and they arrive at the same time as squad four from company H. And how do you organize that, right? Where's the company commander? Is he ashore or not? And so th this kind of, it's, it becomes a cluster until you can reorganize. But the same things happen in Normandy, same things. They happen all over the place. This is actually more the 
rule than it is the exception. When things like that get discombobulated, you have to learn how to reorganize on the fly in the heat of combat, Seth. Yeah, and and that that also goes to show how exemplary the performance of the 7th Infantry was. Um, so the Marines push inland at Namur pretty quickly, not unlike at Roy. Uh, however, when they get to a point called, quote, Sally Point, no lie, uh, the fighting here is rather vicious. It gets pretty nasty. Uh, at 1245, however, and this is unique here, at 1245, the furious rifle and machine gun fire was suddenly drowned out when an enormous explosion literally shook the island from end to end. Roy was was kind of somewhat devoid of vegetation. Now more was more jungle-like. It wasn't jungle like Cape Gloucester jungle, but it was it was highly, you know, forested, I guess is a more proper term. Um, pushing through a jungle-like area, the Marines encountered what they thought was a large concrete blockhouse, partially buried in the sand. Marine engineers threw in satchel charges into the air vent of this supposed blockhouse, which is what they're supposed to do. They're not doing anything they're not supposed to do. Unfortunately, what they did not know is this was not a blockhouse. It was a storage shed, huge concrete storage shed for torpedoes. We all know about the explosive effect of Japanese torpedoes, be they long lance or aerial torpedoes. They still pack a wallop. And this is a storage ammo dump, more proper term, Bill, with what you said, for torpedo warheads. So when these one or two satchel charges go off, the whole friggin' place goes up. And there, there are photographs, and I'll, I'll have to dig one up, of this smoke cloud rising from Namur in the middle of this operation. And there are guys on Roy, the neighboring island, that stopped to look to go, what the hell was that? I mean, it was literally. It looks like a mushroom cloud. Yeah. It is huge. It kills the explosion, kills 20 Marines and wounds over 100 in the neighboring area. Offshore, the explosion looked to have disintegrated the island. The official Marine Corps history states, and I quote, the whole of Namur Island disappeared from sight in a tremendous brown cloud of dust and sand raised by the ocean. Overhead, a Marine artillery spotter felt his plane catapult up a thousand feet and exclaimed, great God almighty, the whole damn island is blown up. This is a massive, massive explosion. It is, yeah. Um, you know, if only we had known, right? That 20 Marines, I, I don't remember what number of Marines had been killed in combat at this point. I don't think it was 20. So no. I think this one explosion killed more Marines than had been killed in, in the fighting at this point. Now, that's not going to be true when you combine the whole battle, but this is, you know, heartbreaking. Yeah. Blue on blue, or kind of. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an unfortunate episode. And it actually happens again later in the war, not to this extent. But, you know, mm -hmm. there are several undiscovered ammo dumps that get kaboom, and, and it winds up killing a lot of guys. But this thing, I mean, literally shakes the island from stem to stern. Um, undeterred. By nightfall, the Marines had joined into a continuous line and received Sherman support from Royce. Again, we talked about armor support or armor employment. Um, the tanks, the uh, the tanks landed at Roy and they traveled over the causeway and they were now on Namur. So the Marines are tied in pretty tight. 
Um, dug in the Marines, waited through the night for the expected counterattack that came just before dawn. Uh, the Japanese launched four successive bonsai charges in the early morning sunlight, all of which were eliminated to a man. Um, Bill, the fighting on Roy and Namur is much like Kwajalein. I think it takes three days to knock out these two islands as opposed to the four that it took out to, that it took to knock out Kwajalein. But the fighting is short, it's sharp, and it's vicious. And again, not unlike anywhere else, there is conspicuous gallantry amongst the people that fight fought for that fight there. Uh, specifically, a guy named Lieutenant Colonel Akila Diaz. Tell us about Diaz, Bill. Yeah, well, he was a Georgia native and an Eagle Scout. Hail to all of us Eagle Scouts. He was standing in full view of his enemy directing the attack when he was killed by a burst of machine gun fire. His leadership and sacrifice would result in him being awarded the Medal of Honor. For cons- and I'll quote this, read the citation. For com- conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity, they all start out that way. At the risk of his life, above and beyond the call of duty, as commanding officer of the 1st Battalion, 24th Marines, 4th Marine Division, in action against enemy Japanese forces during the assault on Namur Island, Kwajalein Atoll, Marshall Islands, 1st and 2nd February 1944. Undaunted by severe fire from automatic Japanese weapons, Lieutenant Colonel Dias launched a powerful final attack on the second day of the assault, unhesitatingly posting himself between the opening opposing lines to point out objectives and avenues approach and personally leading the advance, the advancing troops, alert and determined to quicken the pace of the offensive against the against increasing enemy fire. He was constantly at the head of advanced units, inspiring his men's to men to push forward until the Japanese had been driven back to a small center of resistance and victory assured. While standing on the parapet of the anti-tank trench, directing a group of infantry in a flanking attack against this last enemy position, Lieutenant Colonel Dias was killed by a burst of enemy machine gun fire. His daring and forceful leadership and his valiant fighting spirit in the face of terrific opposition were in keeping with the highest traditions of the U.S. Naval Service. His gallantry gave his life for his country. And Seth, the word naval, as opposed to Navy, naval in the normal usage means combination of Navy and Marine Corps. The Department of Navy is naval, in case anybody wonders why that citation ended that way. It's, you know, again, we we say it all the time, and, and it, whenever we can highlight the actions of Medal of Honor recipients, we're going to do so. Because, you know, and Bill, you've said this, uh, to quote you, you know, there were hundreds, thousands of actions that were just as gallant as this that were unrecognized. But when those are recognized, we want to recognize them because this is the highest order of bravery that that can be performed, in my opinion. And and it's mm-hmm. it's we're never going to not talk about these guys. And Dias wasn't the only gentleman to receive the blue ribbon because of his actions on these two islands. Um, three other Marines from the Fourth Marine Division, this being their first combat now, uh, Richard Anderson, 
uh, three other Marines from the 4th Marine Division would be awarded the medal. Uh, Richard Anderson was awarded the ribbon, uh, the blue ribbon posthumously after he threw himself on a grenade on Roy. Uh, Richard Sorensen, and this is miraculous here, Richard Sorensen also threw himself on a grenade, but miraculously survived. This doesn't happen too often. It happens to, you know, a handful of guys over the war, but not, I mean, this is, this is pretty rare. Um, mm-hmm. A part of his citation reads, and I quote, putting up a brave defense against a particularly violent counterattack by the enemy during invasion operations, Private Sorensen and five other Marines occupying a shell hole were endangered by a Japanese grenade thrown into their midst, unhesitatingly and with complete disregard for his own safety. Private Sorensen hurled himself upon the deadly weapon, heroically taking the full impact of the explosion as a result of his gallant action. He was severely wounded, but the lives of his comrades were saved. I mean... Talk about having guardian angels on your shoulder, man. If you're going to throw yourself on a grenade and you live to tell the tale. You can't, I can't understand how that happens, right? They they were not wearing body armor. No. So it's just, you know, it's incredible. And Corman had to get there quickly. You know, they get, you know, there's so many things that had to happen um, in order for this man to survive that grenade wound that it, it, it boggles the imagination, Seth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's not—he's not the last. We said four Marines were awarded the medal. Uh, unfortunately, there were no United States Army soldiers that were recognized for what must have been significant gallant gallantry on Kwajalein. The Marines were the four that did get the Medal of Honor for this Marshall's campaign. This fourth one is a guy named John Vincent Power. Um, He's from was God bless him was from Worcester, Massachusetts, and I'm not going to say Worcester because I'll hear I'll never hear the end of it. It is Worcester, Massachusetts. <laughs> he was, a, right. and this is this is pretty cool. He was a devout Roman Catholic, and I am a Roman Catholic myself, uh, who attended college who attended the College of the Holy Cross, where one of his professors was a Catholic priest named Joseph O'Callahan. And if anybody knows anything about Medal of Honor recipients in World War II, you know who the hell Joseph O'Callaghan was. Joseph O'Callaghan would also receive the Medal of Honor as a chaplain aboard the aircraft carrier USS Franklin in March of 1945. So that's pretty unique where you actually have two Medal of Honor, future Medal of Honor recipients uh, interacting long before they ever performed the actions mm-hmm. that would get them their medals. Powers enlisted in the Corps in 1942 and served as a lieutenant in the new 4th Marine Division. On February 1st, Powers was in heavy combat, engaging pillboxes when he was wounded. Undeterred, he continued to fight. His citation reads, and I quote, Severely wounded in the stomach while setting a demolition charge on a Japanese pillbox, 1st Lieutenant Powers was steadfast in his determination to remain in action. Protecting his wound with his left hand and firing with his right He courageously advanced as another hostile position was taken under attack, fiercely charging the opening made by the explosion and emptying his carbine into the pillbox. While attempting to reload and continue the attack, First Lieutenant Power was shot again in the stomach and head and collapsed in the doorway. His exceptional valor, fortitude, and indomitable fighting spirit in the face of withering enemy fire were in keeping with the highest traditions of the U.S. Naval Service. He gallantly gave his life for his country. These stories never fail to inspire. And I, 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 I just thought that that was pretty unique. Not only is the fact that the guy take a wound in the stomach he, and holds his guts in with one hand while dumping his carbine with the right, he continues the fight. That is some serious guts right there. No pun intended. That is that is some serious stones. It is, yeah. 
You know, the way that these medals are awarded, they start with, uh, you know, basically the unit commander. Um, somebody will bring a story to that unit commander and say, look, you know, in this case, it would be, you know, uh, power. You know, they, they, they describe the action. The unit commander then decides, holy cow, that that is, you know, John Vincent Power, that's so incredible. I'm going to recommend him for the Medal of Honor. But it's got to go through several layers. And this is, I'm trying to get to the point about the fact that none of the soldiers received a medal for their action on the island of Kwajalein. So they, they would go through the chain of command. And at some point, they would get through Holland Smith. And did Holland Smith put his thumb on the scale for the Marines and not for the soldiers? Those kinds of things did happen. I would have oh, loved sure. to have asked John Magnus while he was on whether he had ev any evidence that this happened. But they would have all gone through Nimitz. And one would have hoped that Nimitz, you know, the, the downgraded from the Medal of Honor for the Army is the Distinguished Service Cross. One would have hoped that Nimitz would have looked at those, all those awards going up because they all have to be at least get to the secretary level and say, you know what, um, I'm going to normalize these. I'm going to equalize the levels of these because the army is being underrepresented here. And, you know, whether nobody was recommended and Nimitz chose not to change the recommendations. I don't know, and I, I'd be really interested to find out. So, yeah, yeah I, it, it's it's hard to imagine that there weren't. I'm not. I'm not, I'm not saying this to be a conspiracy theorist, but I mean, mm -hmm. again, their performance of the seventh was exemplary. It's hard to imagine that there wasn't someone who deserved to be recognized with the nation's highest honor for the Kwajalein operation. I, I, right, but. I don't know. I don't know. By February 2nd, the fighting on Namur is over. Kwajalein Atoll, for the most part, is secure. On February 17th, 1944, the 22nd Marine Regiment uh, landed on Ngebi Island in the Iniwetok Atoll, uh, the fight, which is also part of the Marshals. Uh, the fighting was short but sharp, resulting in the deaths of 37 Americans and an incredible 800 Japanese in a 24-hour period. Uh, with the capture of Ngebi and the Perry Islands, the Marshall Islands campaign was effectively finished. Bill, it, it's a short campaign when when compared to like the Solomons or something like that, or the Marianas. But it's important because it does play a role in the stepping stone. You know, again, this is the Central Pacific Drive. This is what starts at Basio. This is continues here, and it's going to go all the way into the Marianas and beyond. But mm -hmm. this is the second step. So this is an important operation. Let's give it the final assessment that 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 it deserves here. Uh, the casualties, all casualties are tragic, but the casualties on the United States side is not, they're not that bad, are they? You know, 310, 313 Americans KIA, 879 wounded, 77 MIA. The Japanese suffer 3380, 3,380 KIA. So about 3,000 more than the Americans, and only 105 captured. These figures are for every island action in the Kwajalein Atoll area, and, and we talk both. So 10 to 1 exchange ratio of KIA, a little bit more, 11 to 1, something like that. I mean, 
Yeah, it's kind of it was way better than Tarawa. Um, certainly better better than what Oak, Iwo Jima will be. But, you know, everyone is tragic. Mm-hmm. But o- overall, the Marshall Islands campaign, uh, it, it's a resounding success for the United States uh, Navy. And that's who undertakes this operation as the U.S. Navy. Um, the casualties, as we said, are relatively light, you know, especially when compared to Beijing. Uh, the defenses on the Marshalls were honestly, they were nothing like that compared to Beijing. So, I mean, you can understand why the casualties were what they were when compared to the previous operation. And you always compare the current operation to what happened just before it. So you can kind of, you know, give you a measuring stick. Um, if anything, Bill, the, the marshals proves to be a good testing ground for the lessons learned at Beijing, as we talked about. Uh, LVTs played an enormous part in the action, delivering 98% of the soldiers and Marines ashore on all the islands in the campaign. This includes any we talk. Uh, the LVT would be the main people mover for any amphibious invasion going forward from now on and uh, you know the lvt is a cool vehicle and we're not trying to pound on it but it's a big innovation in terms of the way we prosecute the rest of the war bill the naval bombardment you know we talked about ad nauseum at the beginning of the episode it does prove to be successful though overall right yeah it does and you know the use of armor piercing shells made a big difference but the close range of the battleships proved proved to be kind of a dud Quite literally, well, impressive to see and certainly a morale raiser for us and a morale degrader for the Japanese. Having the battleships that close to shore proved to be a waste of time as their shells passed clean through many of their targets. You know, and and this kind of brings one of those nuanced points that people may not understand that it wasn't bigger, wasn't always better when it came to shore bombardments. In fact, what weaponeers try to do is match the ammunition to the target. There's a right kind of, not just what type of shell, armor piercing or high explosives, but also a right size of shell based on, and this is called targeteering or weaponeering. There's a science to this. And from now on, the big, big ships would sit at a distance from the shore where their 14 or 16 inch shells would have time to build the energy to explode upon impact. And this, again, getting back to, you know, land warfare uh, lexicon here, you have direct fire and indirect fire. Direct fire is when you shoot something straight into a target. That armor, tanks, are direct fire, although they can be used for indirect fire. Indirect fire, like artillery, where where the shell goes up and then comes down into the target. Indirect fire is much more effective for certain types of targets, and particularly when it comes to something as big as what the battleships were shooting. Rather than going through, when if you shoot a battleship's gun, direct fire, it has a tendency to go through the target because it's just so impactful. It's got so much energy. If you shoot up and then down indirect fire from that same battleship, it's transfers that energy much more efficiently to the target, which means it blows it up, Seth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's something, again, you know, we're learning this. And you talked mm-hmm. about the the close proximity of the battleships to shore. Just to give a brief, just to give a snippet of an idea here, the battleship USS Mississippi, BB-41, she's a big old girl. <laughs> she's got 14-inch rifles. 
at Kwajalein, she sat 1,500 yards offshore. Mm. 1,500 yards offshore for a battleship. Shoot, and and to your point, Bill, you know, the Marines and the soldiers are going, wow, that's awesome. Yeah, and it is. It looks cool, but it's not doing a whole hell of a lot. And again, this yeah. these are lessons learned. So when you see when we get into the Marianas operation, that doesn't happen. Uh, the battleships are there, mm-hmm. obviously, but that does not happen. They're a little bit further offshore, to your point, Bill. Um, another thing that we learned at Batio that that is employed here is the Americans also overwhelmed their opponents ashore. At Beatio, the Marines enjoyed, quote, unquote, a 1.6 to 1 attacker to defender ratio. And the marshals, it was 6 to 1. Now, doctrine says 5 to 1. So 6 to 1 is obviously even better. But, but I mean, this is something that we're going to employ over and over and over and over again. Yeah, that's even when we talked about Beatio, I said, look, even Sun Tzu said 5 to 1 is the right <laughs> reference to, you know, over 2000 years ago and and i said that well you know it's non-linear because air and artillery and things that didn't exist when sun tzu said this are going to the equation six to one i made the point that we were we are landing full divisions on these islands one mile long that we didn't do that at basio and we learned that important lesson seth so was the marshall campaign worth it yeah, I mean, I, I think the strategic results are kind of hard to ignore here. The the outer ring of the Japanese defenses had been beaten down, and that's what they call it, the outer ring. The Marshall Islands were mm-hmm. the outer ring of the Japanese defensive network. Uh, they'd been beaten down and broken into. Um, the outer ring of the aerial defenses in the Marshall Islands for the Japanese was non-existent. It was no more. There was nothing left for them to utilize. Uh, crushing aerial opposition and the Marshalls allowed the U.S. Navy to plan and execute the carrier raids on truck which would soon follow after Flintlock's completion. Uh, Truck, of course, is the almighty naval complex. It's the Japanese Pearl Harbor of the Pacific at this still at this stage. And and there is coming, uh, you know, there are several actually carrier raids on truck, not unlike Revolve, just with a little bit of different strategic circumstances. But because of the success in the marshals, this allows truck to be under the uh, the guns of of Fifth Fleet here in the very very near future, um, but another thing and another very important thing is, is that the Marshall Islands secured anchorages bill. And being a retired Navy sailor, you know all too well about the the importance of having advanced bases, and that's exactly what this does here, right? It does. Yeah, you can put tenders in there to repair your submarines and your your surface ships. You could put floating dry docks in there. And that's incredible to think about that, right? And this uh, Majuro that was a huge, kind of like Kwajalein Atoll. And you could go into the Atoll surrounded by all of this kind of shallow shoal water, these reefs. Though Those reefs that surround you provide some protection from high seas and things like that. So the ships riding on anchor and in fact, they would put mooring buoys there so you don't always have to ride at anchor. Um, but those ships at anchor on, a, on these buoys wouldn't experience the rough sea ocean, you know, that you would experience if you're outside the atoll, which makes them e- easier to repair. They even did R&R here inside Majuro. It became enormously important to the entire conduct of the war going forward, Seth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it becomes... A, a, a kind of de facto home port for the fast carriers, you know, for a, mm-hmm. a long time, uh, you know, 
and we'll get to this point, like you know, where the, where the fifth fleet and later third fleet, however you want to look at it, they kind of almost constantly roam. You know, they're never really home per se. Uh, they're always at sea almost all the time. But when they're not, from here on out, unless a ship has to go to Pearl for repair or refurb and go back to the states, whatever the case may be, for the most part, they're living at Majuro and later Ulithi as as the world moves even further. But Majuro becomes, you know, this huge naval complex from here, U.S. naval complex from here on out for the rest of the war, even after the fast carriers and the big blue fleet moves on. You know, this is a huge logistical stopping point for everything that the Navy pushes westwards and the remainder of the Central Pacific Drive. So the capture of the marshals, it wasn't like, you know, like the Marianas. You know, we weren't staging B-29s here, but it was a staging point for the U.S. Pacific Fleet. And it just it was huge. It was absolutely huge. Uh, the objective of obtaining repair facilities, anchorages, and the like, as outlined in War Plan Orange, not proved not only to be accurate but vital for the continued prosecution of the war. So, you know, yeah. it, 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 it's 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 a vitally important operation because it plays such a large role in what happens afterwards. And the fact that it was incredibly successful makes the Marshall Islands definitely worth the time and effort. Wouldn't you say that? Yeah, it's strategically important, and it turns out the strategic importance of Tarawabatio were the lessons that we learned from it. But as we migrated farther to the north and west, Batio, Tarawa, um, declined in importance as a base, place to base forces. However, the, the strategic lessons derived from Batio, carried throughout the war. Mm -hmm. This, in the Marshals, they remained major bases throughout the war. So they were strategic in that sense. And, and I would say from the combat lessons learned after action report sense, they really served to confirm what we thought we had learned from Tarawa. Because you don't really know whether you learn the right lessons until you apply the corrective action and try again. And we did, and it worked. So marshals then reinforced the right way to do things. And I even believe, you know, pertain to Normandy, which would happen later in this year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a good way to wrap it up, Bill. Is there anything else you want to add in before we close out? I do want to make one final point. So those of mm -hmm. you that follow the Marine Corps, of 2023, know that there's a battle in the Marine Corps today for the heart and soul of what the Marine Corps is all about. The commandant, has, the, the last commandant and the new commandant, as we're recording this, um, unconfirmed by the Senate, acting commandant, I should say, have a vision of the Marine Corps that's very different than what it's been since the... Actually, I would say since before Desert Storm, what it's been since Vietnam, I'll put it that way. From World War II through Vietnam, through Desert Storm, through the global war on terror, the Marine Corps operated like an expeditionary army. 
I'm going to say that. I know Marines are going to cringe when they hear me say that, but they're going to, they operate just like the army does, just something that's a little bit more amphibious. Semper Fi brothers. Okay. That, that's the way I'm just describing it. Not exactly correct, but it kind of conveys the idea. This last commandant and this commandant have created a concept called the Marine Vision, Marine concept or 2030. 2030, I think it is. I'm, I'm going from memory here. Forgive me. And in that concept, he's eliminated armor, no tanks, and he's added anti-ship missiles that Marines, not sailors, would fire from advanced bases on islands in the Pacific. And the reason I say there's a battle in the Marine Corps these days is many old commandants and many other Marine Corps generals have been fighting this change in doctrine for, I'd say, probably three years since it was three or four years since it was first announced. And the Marine Corps has eliminated their armor. They don't have tanks anymore. That happened a year or two ago. And the the, the old generals who are, have been fighting this, and it's gone public, it's been ugly, a fight among Marines point to battles like these mm -hmm. to, as evidence that how important it is for Marines to have that armor um, and, and, you know, focused on the land battle, not on the battle against ships at sea. So again, you, that's a summary. There's a, you can go into a lot more levels. This argument takes on a lot of texture if you study it. And I'm not going to declare who I think is right and who's wrong, because I think the arguments are still playing out, and I'm not quite sure myself. But I, I just draw your attention to that, because it's an interesting fight within the Marine Corps that's heavily influenced by the battle we just talked about during this episode, Seth. But that's it. Yeah, it, 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 there's strange things happening in the United States military as a whole right now, you know, all over the mm -hmm. place, and uh, can only hope that it does turn out for the best. So with that, we want to thank you very much for listening in on our conversation. Please subscribe to the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War Podcast wherever you receive your podcasts. Give, give us a rating and review. We do appreciate it. Also, if you want to see the video version of this or any of our other episodes, please tune into our YouTube channel and subscribe called the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War Podcast. If you have a question, send us an email at unauthorizedpacificpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, once again, my name is Seth Perrin. I also want to say thank you for John McManus, who will be back on our show with us in the near future. Uh, I want to say thank you very much for listening and or watching. Bill. And I'm Bill Toady. See you again next week.